judge not, that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or, or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when there is the log in your own eye? You hypocrite! First, take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give to dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Beware of, of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or, or figs from thistles? So, every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. And not everyone that says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father is who is in heaven. And on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like the wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house. But it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like the foolish man who built his house on the sand and the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. And when Jesus finished these sayings, 
crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. This is how Matthew chooses to end his recounting of this famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. He ends it by focusing on the great amazement of the crowd, their response to this incredible teaching of Jesus, their astonishment. They were amazed because of the words that Jesus proclaimed, because of the truth that he was bringing before them. They were amazed at his ability to speak these words to them. They were amazed at the authority with which he proclaimed them. Unlike all the other scribes and rabbis of his time who based all their authority in what a previous rabbi had said, Jesus bases his authority in himself. You have heard that it was said, but I say to you, and the crowd sat back and they listened, and as he wrapped up this sermon, Matthew says, they were amazed, astonished. And that sentiment about the Sermon on the Mount has actually continued for the last 2,000 years. That when people encounter this sermon, they are consistently taken back by it. And the church has been fascinated with this sermon. We have, as I said, for 2,000 years, poured over this sermon. There have been hundreds of books written on it, thousands, if not millions of sermons preached on it, hours upon hours in classrooms discussing it and debating it and trying to get to the root of it. We are taken back by this sermon. But here's kind of the interesting part, is that it's not just the church. It's not just Christians who find themselves interested in, even fascinated by this sermon. Non-Christians throughout history, unbelievers, have, have found themselves drawn to the words of Jesus in Matthew 5 through 7. Loving the, the truths and, and the, the ethics that are proclaimed in this sermon. Gandhi, who was, of course, Hindu in his faith, had a deep affection for Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount, loved them, tried his best to live accordingly. He, he once said that if all the Christians in India would practice the teachings of Jesus as found in the Sermon on the Mount, Hinduism would cease to exist in that land. Thomas Jefferson, who famously created his own Bible, basically cutting out all the parts that deal with supernatural activity or with the divinity of Jesus. Thomas Jefferson once remarked that Jesus' teaching is the most sublime and benevolent code of morals which has ever been offered. And there are many who have shared in that sentiment. This view that though they do not really believe in Jesus as the Son of God, though they would not consider themselves Christians, they believe his words in here to be amazing. They view this sermon as some of the highest moral codes of a brilliant religious teacher. Clearly, they were not paying attention to the end of his sermon. Because no mere human teacher would end his sermon the way Jesus ends his Sermon on the Mount. 
And there's a lot of ending in this sermon. Actually, most of Matthew 7 is just conclusion, I would argue, conclusion to the great sermon that he's been teaching. That's where we'll actually be spending most of our time today in his, is in his conclusion, which is from verse 13 down. Before we do that, though, I do want to even very, very briefly, and we won't do these near enough justice, but touch on these last three pieces of teaching that come from Jesus' main body. You'll find after 13, there's no more ethical commands for how to live your life. But, but there's, there's a few, there's three in chapter 7, three main things that he teaches on, and, and just to touch on those, the first is this one, starting in verse 1 through verse 5, judge not that you be not judged. One of perhaps the most famous verses in Scripture. People who don't know hardly anything else of the Bible know this one at least, right? Or in the King James Version at least they know it, right? Judge not lest ye be judged. And there are many people who know to throw this one around as kind of this great command to stay out of my business. Right? The Bible says not to judge. Judge not that you be not judged. That's not, I believe, what Jesus is getting at. As a matter of fact, in verse 6, he's going to command his followers to make judgments about people to discern about people's hearts and character and attitudes. So, so I don't think that he's saying do not judge. What this passage is about, verses 1 through 5, has to do much more with the attitude of pride in a person when they speak to people about their sin, when they look at others. He's speaking not against making judgments or against um, discerning in people. He's speaking against a pride and a self-righteousness that blinds me to my own sin and only enables me to see the sin of everybody else around me. This, this arrogance that would put myself up above everyone else as the arbiter of truth and justice, all the while blind to my own shortcomings and failings. That's what Jesus speaks against in those verses. And then in verse six, you have sort of another famous passage, although a lot of us don't know where this comes from, but that phrase, pearls in a pig's eye, or, or something like that. Jesus says, do not give to dogs what is holy, or cast your pearls before swine. And here what he's talking about, as I mentioned, is the discernment to be able to see in a person, yes, we are called to, to bring truth to people. We are called to, to share the gospel with people and to share the message of Jesus with people. But there is a point, Jesus says, in which we need to be able to recognize a person's heart and, and the lack of responsiveness in it. That there, be, there comes a point where a continual proclaiming of truth to someone only builds a greater hardness and an animosity towards the person speaking that truth and even towards the gospel itself. He says they will turn and trample on those pearls of truth. So there needs to be a discernment. Next comes this kind of puzzling section on prayer in verses 7 through 11, and I want to go ahead and just read that to you. Verses 7 through 11 say this, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks find, and to the one who knocks it will be open. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask of him? 
Now, I, I said that this was a puzzling section, and it is, but not so much for the content. What Jesus says here is pretty straightforward. Ask and you will receive. Now, there is actually, I guess, one question about when it says that your father will give good things to those who ask of them. What specifically are those good things? And that needs to be a little bit sorted out. But, but by and large, this instruction is really straightforward and pretty open. What's puzzling about it is not the content. What's puzzling is the placement. Because if you remember, Jesus already taught on prayer. That was chapter 6. That was last week with Ryan teaching us through the Lord's Prayer. And if there's any place where this scripture would fit well, it would have been right there, right after the Lord's Prayer and right before Jesus talking about how you don't have to be anxious because God knows your needs. That would have been the perfect spot for this. And yet it doesn't go there. It somehow ends up here at the end. Why is that? We'll get to that in just a bit, but first I want us to move into this summary verse. That's verse 12. It says this, So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. That's kind of how you know he's actually coming to a conclusion of his main body because he started his main body in Matthew 5, 17, which said, Do not think that I came to abolish the law and the prophets, I came to fulfill them. And then he gives this whole sermon showing how he fulfills the law and the prophets, that is the Old Testament, how his kingdom is the ultimate um, filling out of what the Old Testament was all about. And then he sums it up, he bookends it here and says, after preaching all these things, and says, so whatever you want done to you, do that to others, for this is the law and the prophets. It's his summary verb, and then he goes into verse 13. And as I said, this is where we're going to be spending our time this morning in verse 13 and onward. What you have in Jesus' conclusion is four different sections, each of them with their own different contrasting word picture in them. And so we're going to explore these four different contrasts that Jesus lays out before his listeners today and before us. Here is the first one in verse 13. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many, for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. So the first contrast that Jesus puts before his listeners is these two gates, a wide and a narrow gate with their own corresponding roads. And this wide gate and this wide path that is connected to it is the way of the world, Jesus says. And, and this gate is easy to get into. It is large, and the way that it is connected to is broad, and there is plenty of room for your own personal preference as to how you're going to live on that. It it is an easy path. The terrain is simple. You will encounter little resistance on this path because everyone else will be going that way with you. But Jesus says, ultimately, that way leads to destruction. And then there is the narrow gate, and, and no one could ever accuse Jesus of soft-selling the call to follow him and be his disciple. Because he says from the get-go, this is the harder way. This will be difficult. The gate is small and tough to fit through. The, the terrain is rough. There will be much resistance that you encounter. 
It is the harder way, but it is the only way that leads to life, Jesus says. So enter through that gate. Go that direction. Now this gets complicated. This gets difficult because not only is that a harder path to go down, and not only are we more naturally inclined towards taking the easy path with the rest of the world, but Jesus warns, there will be people who pop up in our lives, people who arise throughout history who will constantly be pointing to the wide path and telling everyone that it's the right way to go. There will be people popping up within the church deceiving people about which is the right direction to take. Here's what he says in verse 15. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. He says that they will come in sheep's clothing, and that that word sheep is is a common metaphor for the people of God, for Christians, for the church. And so what he says is they will look just like my people. They will look upon first appearance like they belong to us, but inside they are ravenous wolves and they will destroy my people. They will tear them apart if they listen to them, if they get misled into going the wrong way. The good news, Jesus says, is that we're not left guessing for very long about their identity, about their true nature. Here's what he says in verse 16. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire, thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Jesus says, here's the thing with false prophets. They are dangerous. False teachers are dangerous. And this is a big deal in the Bible, by the way. Nearly every book in the New Testament warns against false prophets or false teachers or false apostles. And he says, they will be able to talk the talk for a while. And and they may even be able to walk the walk for a little while. And they will be able to deceive a number of people. But if you watch them long enough, eventually... They will be exposed by their fruit, by their character, their behavior, and their lifestyle. This idea of fruit as kind of a word picture for our lives and and our uh, character is, is a favorite one in the New Testament. The writers like to use this, and it really is a very apt illustration of how this works to describe us as trees going growing fruit. Because the way it works is like a tree does not, and this is really important to catch, a tree does not bear good fruit in order to become a healthy tree. No, no, no. A tree bears good fruit because it already is a healthy tree. And that's really important to discern the difference between those two things. And that is the way that the Christian life works. We see this over and over again. I do not become healthy and good and right by doing a lot of good things. No, no, no. Good things naturally flow from me when God is working from within me to make me good and healthy and right. When I am rooted in him, he does the work. And yes, there's effort on my part, but it is him who is working in me to bear that fruit rather than me trying to produce it or manufacture it myself. 
And Jesus says this is so natural. It's as natural as an orange tree putting out oranges that someone who is not truly rooted in God, not truly connected to him, will not be able to produce real life-giving fruit. And if you watch long enough and you watch close enough, you'll be able to see that in them. So here is the question, though. What specifically is the fruit that he's talking about? What is the healthy fruit that we ought to be looking for in a person's life? I believe he answers that in our next question or our next section. Verse 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. So fruit is this, doing the will of God, doing the will of the Father in heaven. And now we come to our third contrast. So the first is between a narrow and wide gate, and the second is between healthy and unhealthy trees bearing good or bad fruit. And this next one is between those who do the will of God and those who do not. And then what will happen to each of those on that last day? He says in verse 22, on that day, the final day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. There are two key truths that come from those verses right there really important for us to see. The first is this, that Jesus says that when it all comes down to the end, when it comes down to who is in and who is out, when it comes down to who has done the will of the Father and who has not, Jesus says, I am the final judge on that. I am the key. I am the one who determines who is in and who is out. And this is where Gandhi gets it so wrong. Because no mere teacher would say these kinds of things. That's arrogant. That's borderline delusional. And every other, by and large, religious teacher who has shown up in the world comes with these scriptures or these codes of ethics or these morals and says, here, this, this is the way to get to God. Jesus, on the other hand, is the only one who comes and points to himself and says, this is the way to get to God. I admit, no one comes to the Father except by me. And on that day, it will come down to when you step up in heaven and you call me Lord and you proclaim all the things you said you were going to do, what it comes down to is whether I say I knew you or not. That's crazy talk if all he is is a good moral teacher. The second key truth that we get from this text, and this is a bit of a scary one, we saw in our previous section on the good and bad trees, the false prophets, that it is actually possible to deceive people about your true identity and your connection to or lack of connection with God. It's possible to deceive people about your actual nature. This text here reveals to us that it's it's actually possible to deceive yourself about your relationship with God. That there will be many who come before Jesus on that final day calling him Lord, 
paying him homage, giving him respect. Lord, Lord, did we not? And they will list off all these incredible things that we did for you. We prophesied in your name. We cast out demons in your name. We did mighty works in your name. And Jesus will say to them, I never knew you. It's possible to deceive yourself. Five years ago, I sat down to have lunch with a friend of mine. The reason we were having lunch is because, um, uh, truthfully, I I had some, some concerns that I needed to voice to him about his life that he was living in sin, and I felt like I needed to talk to him about those things. And, and let me clarify real quick when I say living in sin, I, I don't mean that there was sin in his life. Because all of us, to some degree or another, have sin in our lives that we are consistently trying to work through and consistently trying to hand over to God. All of us are sinful. What I mean was that There was sin in his life, and I saw no signs of repentance over that sin. That there appeared to be no remorse in him, that he was not striving to overcome that sin. Instead, he was choosing to embrace it. And that's what had me concerned, and and I told him that, and we talked, and, and I said, man... I need to know about your relationship with God because I'm worried about it with your current life. I'm worried about your, your knowing him and your being connected to him. And this is what my friend said. He said to me, see, this is what nobody understands. He said, my relationship with God is great right now. I get up every morning and I read the Bible and I spend time praying to him and talking to him. My relationship with God is really good, better than it's ever been right now. And my mind went back to Jesus' words in Matthew 7. And I said to him, here's, here's the problem with that. Like, I'm, I'm, not, even, I'm not even saying you're a liar. Maybe, maybe you are getting up and spending time in the Word. Maybe you are praying to Him. Maybe you do feel close to Him. I don't know. But what I do know is that Jesus says to us that we will know a tree by its fruit. That is, we will know the true nature of a person by the lifestyle that they are producing naturally. And I do not see the kind of fruit in you. I do not see a desire to do God's will in you, which leads me to believe that there is an unhealth in you. I mean, you can tell me that your condition is great. You can tell me that you are connected to God and knowing him and loving him and close to him. Jesus tells me otherwise. And as much as I love you, I am always going to land on this side when it comes to you and your condition. Listen, you can can spend every day of your life reading through the Bible, having a quiet time. You can spend all kinds of time in prayer. You can come to church every Sunday and raise your hands and worship and get those incredible, awesome, warm feelings that you get when you sing. And and all of that stuff is good. And I am thankful to God for all of those things. And all of those things are things we ought to want to have in our life. But none of those things is the primary indicator for your relationship to God. Time and time again, the Bible says it is this. Do you do his will? That's how you know. 
And there will be people who will come to Jesus with all kinds of great experiences that they had. And not only that, he says, with all kinds of incredible things that they did in ministry, prophesying in his name and doing mighty works. And Jesus will say he did not know them. So here's the question. If prophesying in the name of Jesus and and casting out demons in the name of Jesus and doing mighty works in his name is not doing the will of the Father, then what is? Again, I think we have our answer in the next section. Jesus says in verse 24, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall, because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. Jesus says, to do the will of his Father is this. Hear these words of mine, contextually speaking, he's referring to the Sermon on the Mount, to hear these words that I have preached to you and do them. That is what it is to do the will of the Father. I loved, I loved getting to hear Kyle stand up here and proclaim the truths of this scripture to us, to, to preach it hopefully as Jesus would have preached it. It makes it come alive to me to get to hear him proclaim things that way. As, as one friend told me, it puts flesh on it. You know what I mean? Has that not been awesome to be able to listen to Kyle and, and Morgan stand up and proclaim these passages, entire chapters of Scripture memorized, that they stand up here to recite to you the effort that was put into that. And, and I know that I've, I've heard from some of you who have said that actually listening to that has not just challenged you but inspired you to want to take more of God's word into your hearts, to put the effort into it, to know and memorize it. But, but you know this, right? That the point of Kyle getting up here to recite that passage to you is not for us to be amazed at Kyle's great memory. The point of it is not for us to be amazed at his ability to recite these words. We know, Drew... The point is not to be amazed at Kyle's memory. The point is to be amazed at Jesus and his teaching. No. No, that's not the point either. Matthew records this, that the people, the crowds themselves, were amazed at his teaching. They were astonished at his teaching. And yet, Jesus gives them no congratulations for that. Matthew mentions that it happened, but he doesn't give them any credit for being amazed. In fact, this is the pattern that takes place over and over again in the Gospels, that Jesus stands up and he teaches and he preaches, and consistently the crowds are amazed, and never do we see Jesus get excited about them being amazed. Because the point of Jesus' teaching is not to be amazed by it, the point is to obey it. 
You realize that, right? Like when Jesus stands up and he says these incredible words, you have heard that it was said you should not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. He's not saying that so that we can stand back and go, wow, Jesus sets the bar so high. He's saying that so that you'll stop lusting after people made in the image of God, forming them into objects for your own consumption and pleasure. When he says to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, he's not saying that so we can stand back and say, man, he is so countercultural. He's saying that so that you will love your enemies as you love yourself. When he says, do not be anxious about anything, but trust in God. When he says, do not retaliate when someone attacks you. When he says, pray first and foremost for God's kingdom to come and his will to be done. The point is not for you and I to look at it and say, Jesus is so profound. Jesus is so deep. The point is for us to humbly submit ourselves before our Lord and obey. That's the point. And by now, you've maybe noticed that these four different contrasts that Jesus has laid out before us are really just one, just given from different angles. What Jesus is describing is the contrast between two ways of living, namely two ways of responding to Jesus. The narrow and the wide gate just describe those who will seek to listen and obey Jesus and give their lives to him and enter into his kingdom while the wide gate is those who choose not to and to go the way of the world. Good and bad trees, the difference is whether or not they are rooted in Christ and his teaching and therefore producing an obedience to him, whereas a bad tree will not do those things. Those who say, Lord, Lord, may both say the same things when they get in heaven. The difference is those who did the will of the Father in obeying Jesus. And the wise and the foolish builder represent those who hear the words of Jesus and do them, and those who hear the words of Jesus and do not. And that last one is really critical. Because Jesus does not differentiate. He's not contrasting those who love him and those who hate him. He's not contrasting between those who want to listen to him and those who close their ears and don't want to hear what he has to say. No, no, no. Both of these two listen to him. The difference is this one listens and obeys. The other is this one shows up, hears his teaching or preaching, whether it be in Galilee at the Sermon on the Mount or in a church pew on Sunday, listens to what he says and then does not do what he says. And that person, he says, may as well be over with those who reject me. Because in each one of these contrasts, there's no third option. There's no middle, medium-sized gate with a slightly difficult road. There's no somewhat healthy tree bearing mediocre fruit. There's no mildly competent builder putting together a mostly stable house. It is either with him, submitting to him, following him, obeying him, or it is not. Those are the two options he gives. One leads to life, one to destruction. So the question is, when we step back and we look at that, and we look at all the high standards, the incredible demands that Jesus places on his followers in the Sermon on the Mount, you're probably thinking to yourself, but how do I do that? 
Like if this is the call to not just hear but to do these things, I don't know if I can. Like how does one even begin to go about living the kind of kingdom life that Jesus describes in his Sermon on the Mount? The first thing I think we need to do is is stop and be real honest with ourselves as to whether or not we really want to or not. Right, because there's a difference. There's a difference between the kind of attitude and heart that goes, man, I want to live this way, but I don't know if I've got it in me. I want to try to do these things, but I keep failing. Or maybe if I'm honest some days, I don't even want to do these things, but I want to want to do these things, if you know what I mean. It's just that that desire in me is somewhat broken. There's a difference between that kind of attitude and an attitude that looks at the Sermon on the Mount and says, yeah, I don't know if I'm going to do those things. That says, I mean, that's really, that's really great and all, Jesus. That's some incredible words you have there, but I don't know how realistic that really is for my life. How practical that is for my day in and day out living. And if we're in this camp over here, um, then we have reason to be concerned. If you're over here, then, then my prayer and my hope for you is that you would heed the words of Jesus to enter the narrow gate because the path that you're on leads to destruction. For those of us who are over here who long to and want to and desire to, but it just seems outside of our grasp, what do we do? First, I would say is take take joy in the fact that you want to. the, the fact that there is any desire to try and be obedient, however hard that may be, is a sign of God's working in you. And so praise him for that and em- embrace that and seek that. And the second thing I would say is that I think the answer to our question lies in that weird, misplaced section of Scripture that we read in verses 7 through 11. If I may land in the same place, basically, that Ryan landed last week. This is what he says in those verses. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks, it will be opened to you. Now, I can't prove this for sure. But I am pretty sure that there's a reason that this section of Scripture didn't get put in chapter 6 with the rest of the prayer. That there's a reason that Jesus saved it for the very last piece of instruction in his Sermon on the Mount. Because I think he knows that there are going to be people who look back at everything he said and goes, I can't do that. And Jesus gives us this last bit of instruction, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find to say this, that you don't have to do it by yourself. Of course you can't do it. Of course you don't have it in you. But your Father in heaven knows your needs. And if you seek the wisdom to do it, if you seek the desire to do it, he will give those things to you. 
And he says you can trust him to do that because he's a good father. He says in verse 9, or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? He says, you can trust him to give you good things as your father. I actually, I love the way Luke gives us this teaching because Luke gets real specific about what those good things are. This is what he says in Luke 11, verse 13. If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Of course you can't do it. Of course you don't have it in you to be able to do those things, but there are two beautiful and amazing truths that come with the gospel. And there's actually more beautiful and amazing truths, but two of the primary ones that stand at the forefront is first this, that in my failures and in my sin, the grace of God through Jesus Christ is big enough to take all of those away from me. Colossians 1 says that I have been reconciled by Christ's physical body through death and presented holy in God's sight without blemish and free from accusation that in spite of how big my sin is, his grace is bigger and he forgives me in my failures as I strive to move forward and continually stumble and fall. He forgives me in my sin, but not only does he forgive me in my sin, he gives me his Holy Spirit in order to overcome that sin so that I don't have to continue living in it and I can't do it, that's right, but he in me can. And he says, ask and you'll receive, and your father knows how to give good gifts to you. You think he won't give you the Holy Spirit to help you in these things? Sermon on the Mount presents us with two different ways of living. With Jesus, in submission to Jesus, or not. One way is hard, but leads to life. One way is easy, but leads to destruction. My hope and prayer is that you will find the hard gate and make your way through it, whatever the cost, knowing that you don't have to do that by your own power and strength, that his Holy Spirit can be at work in you to grow you in those things. We've been a fair amount over the last couple weeks closing out with a couple of minutes for you guys just to spend in reflection. And that seems appropriate to do again today. I want to give us two minutes. Two minutes, one minute to be real honest with yourself and God and ask this question as to whether or not you really even want to obey the words of Jesus to submit to him, to take up your cross daily and follow him or whether you're just kind of playing games here. That to take a minute to kind of think through that, and then I want to give you also, you'll have another minute there to spend some time asking him for the ability and the, the desire even and the wisdom and the strength to obey him as he's called you to do, and then I will close us out in prayer. So take just two minutes to spend reflecting with him. Father, these are the words of your son that if you ask us or if we ask you, that we'll receive.
So we will trust that now. And the standards that you set are, are too high for us because they're perfection, because they're holiness, and we're not that, but um, your word says that for those of us who are in Christ Jesus, that your Holy Spirit is in us, and so, Lord, I pray for strength from him for us, that you would teach us to listen to his voice, to walk by him, to respond to him, and to trust in his strength for us, that you would give us hearts that want to obey you, and desire to follow you and love you above all else. May your spirit, you yourself, would do the work in us to produce that kind of life in us. I ask you that in the name of Jesus. Amen. It's our practice here um, to always have people down front, um, elders or Stevens ministers who will be here, who, who want to be able to talk with you or pray with you if you have anything that's on your mind or heart. Um, today. They, they'll be here. In fact, they can start making their way up, and, and we would love to be able to talk with you. Um, we're done today, so you are dismissed. Have a great week.